Hey guys, this is Jessica. And this is Kendra. And you're listening to Lucid Lab. How's it going? It's not going so well today because we've been spoiled the last week with like 80 degree weather and sunshine. (laughs) And we woke up today to come over and record and it was raining slash snowing. Snowing. Yeah. But you know what? I'm happy to be in our little comfy space with our blankets and... And slippers and some. we have such a good little space. We do. Like, I feel a little spoiled with it. But if you hear some sniffling, it's because it just immediately affected me. The, the weather change. Yeah. yeah. I had on flip flops yesterday. Uh, and then this morning I'm like, oh, time to get the socks and boots back out. I know. It's annoying. It's spring in Colorado. I mean, we'll go through this probably until like June and mm-hmm. then it will finally get warm. We're so spoiled here. I know other people listening from other places are like, just shut up already about the weather. <laughs> Well, we walk. That's why we care about the weather. Yes. We're outside. Yeah. I did go for a walk late last night and was listening oh, to a podcast. You I, were walking at night? I was. It is, it is staying out. It is staying light out later. Huh? So, Well, I was out <laughs> after dark. I'm taking on some of Jessica's <laughs> bad habits, I, I guess, guess so. because the day just got away from me and I was yeah. like, I need to move. Like, I just feel better if I get, you mm-hmm. know, so many steps in per day. So I'm like, I'm just going to go. I, I almost did. did. And then I probably did the right thing and went to bed because I've been staying up way too late trying to prepare for everything and it's been catching up to me and so I do this little extra side job thing I don't want to it's just money money and where I deliver this can't believe I deliver dang it me but it's okay we do what we have to do (laughs) you did it too yeah yeah I'm like it doesn't matter like what we make we're in such hyperinflation with gas and everything like it's the only thing you can do is to go pick up a little extra side gigs I think we're all doing it so I have been dealing with a man who I am pretty sure is a serial killer. He's very creepy. With the winter months, it's been dark. Mm-hmm. And so every time I'd be there, it would be pitch dark. So I told you this, but part of the reason why I started questioning him is because I didn't realize that he was watching me and waiting for me. The entire front of his house is all glass and there are no curtains. There's nothing. Yeah, yeah that's weird already to and me. His house would be pitch black. Where I have to deliver, he has like this area that's right near this floor to ceiling glass that covers the front of his house. Let me add some context to this. There's a lot of lakes in Colorado. The front of his house faces the lake and around the lake is a pathway that people use to walk. No curtains, nothing. He has nothing. sitting there watching. He's a people watcher. But one time I was delivering like a light from across the lake illuminated inside his house and he was just standing in the hallway staring at me and he doesn't ever acknowledge me he will not look at me just through you but like through me but never like look me in the eye and or if I'm looking at him he won't look at me that was the only time he looked at me was the one time that he was standing in the hallway because he didn't know you could see him he didn't know I could see him then it started to happen more and I explained like I deliver right next to the glass and the other side of that is a kitchen table I didn't realize that he was sitting in the pitch dark right at the table just waiting shoulder one point I'm inches I could be shoulder to shoulder with him twice now his phone would go off on the table and illuminate this fucking massive human being right next to me through the glass there is about a five to six hour window in which I could deliver to him and I never let him know when I'm coming and no matter when I come he's he's there there. 
in pitch dark. No one just fucking sits in pitch dark. Uh, yeah. I'm sorry. Psychopaths do. And he never leaves his house. But we know he has a job because we stalked him online. And I won't say we what did. his job is, but, but maybe he works his, from home. His job also doesn't make sense considering what he went to school for and what he does now. So it's very yeah. strange. He has a medical background. He's very tall. And he looks like Buffalo Bill from and he looks Science like Buffalo. of the he has, he has like thick kind of curly-ish hair to like his shoulders. Yeah, it's not good. So I tell Jessica <laughs> to call me while she's yeah, delivering I try to, to I try to be on the phone. Yeah. No matter what time, like no matter where he was on a route, I would make sure that I was delivering during the daytime. Yeah. And now with the nicer weather, people are finally starting to walk around that lake again. And so now like there's human beings around and he can't fucking do anything to me. And so I'm like, if something ever happens to me, you guys all know where to start. And <laughs> and today we're going to be doing a true crime story. And I think this oh. is great to talk about because... I think that we overlook these small things in people sometimes mm-hmm. and it's going to come out in the story today. We write off odd behavior. Yeah. And it just escalates. Yeah. That's the scary thing. When you see someone like this, it's like it is odd. he may I, not have killed anyone yet, but it's odd behavior. He could be headed behavior. that way. And, you know, you sometimes stop like I stopped and I'm like, ooh, I'm judging someone. But the way he does this, I'm sorry. It's not just someone. It's something scary. Pathological. Yeah. And I. I'm a subject of that. I guess I'm just putting it out there to the world. Like there is this person that exists that I'm scared of. Hey, okay. Well, let's do something good feeling before okay. all this. Before we get into more darkness. You told me and I don't know. Let's why. do our co-star. Well, let me read you a horoscope first, actually, oh. from somewhere else. Let's okay. just switch it up. What you are feeling is spot on, even though you may not be able to fully fathom it yet. You are surrounded by love, Aww. something most people crave. Mm. Good news is on its way. All your hard work is going to be recognized and rewarded shortly. Expect rewards to flow in, in monetary and in other ways. Trust, trust, trust. Okay. You shiny thing. Mm, Your wish is granted. Now plan your celebration. That was too good. (laughs) Did you write that for me? I did. It came from my brain just now. (laughs) Let's read mine. I will take it. Now yours is going to be something like doom and gloom. (laughs) Says Capricorn. Gear up for some exciting things coming your way. Think contracts, opportunities, people, resources, unexpected windfalls, and the like. It's time to go full throttle and honor your word. A little creativity will take you a very, very far away, my friend. Not only will things get done faster, but they will also carry that extra zing. Overall, it's all good. I think that both of our horoscopes say we're where we need to be right now. I think so. Finally. Good. (sighs) Yeah, sometimes mine are not so positive. I know. Okay. Tell me what you're doing this week. Okay. So I'm doing my first true crime episode this week, which I chose a real monster. Yeah. His name is Randall Woodfield, otherwise known as the I-5 killer. I wanted someone who was active out in the West Coast since we live out here. And I Mm -hmm. found this guy. And like I said, he's a monster. So let me tell you about Randall Woodfield. All right. Give it to me. Over the course of only 11 weeks, Oof. he did a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he started his crime spree in December of 1980, and he was finally stopped. I don't know if he would have ever stopped, honestly, on his own. He yeah. was finally caught 
in late February 1981. So 11 weeks. Jeez. There were vicious reports of sexual assaults, murder, robberies, and kidnappings occurring along the I-5 corridor stretching from Washington State down to California. The perpetrator was dubbed as the I-5 killer. The victims were mostly young females between ages of 16 and 22 mm-hmm. who worked at fast food, grocery, mm-hmm. and convenience stores. I'm imagining that it, a lot is happening all at once, and so it was even hard to This guy was committing multiple crimes within the same day. Yikes. He was in a manic state. It was a true spree. Yes. Okay. Because there was no real connection and they were happening all over the place, Mm -hmm. I personally am really proud of the law enforcement that they were able to stop him in the 11 weeks. Early March of 1981, law enforcement arrested a man named Randall Woodfield in association with the string of all these crimes. He was the quintessential all-American guy next door. So scary. He was 30 years old. (gasps) Wow. He was six foot two. Very good looking. Yeah. He was not the kind of guy that you would expect to be accused of committing such sadistic and violent crimes. He was polite, soft-spoken, and well-liked by everyone who knew him. Woodfield has never confessed to any of the crimes which he has been accused or convicted of. The sad part is he has only been convicted of one murder and one attempted murder. However, over the coming years and decades following this one conviction, he has been linked via DNA to many other. It is believed that he is connected to up to 44 murder victims. Mm. And he has also been linked through DNA to over 60 sexual assault cases. Oh, my gosh. Today, I will discuss six of his victims because these are the ones that Okay. He's only been convicted of one, right. but we know these other ones. CBS News named him one of the deadliest serial killers in American history. Fortunately for all of us, he's currently incarcerated at the Oregon State Pen. And he's still alive? He's still alive. Okay. And he should remain there for the rest of his life. Okay. So when I was researching Randall Woodfield, one of the main sources I used is a book called The I-5 Killer by Anne Rule. Okay. She was a famous true crime author, and she actually had worked with Ted Bundy. And she's written many books. She's no longer with us, but she is very detailed. Her name sounds very familiar to me. You've probably read something by her. Yeah. I listened to the audiobook, and it, it was really, really good. And the most interesting thing about her is that she actually worked directly with the detectives. She was from this area in Oregon, and she talked to... The witnesses, she was at all of the trials and and she's been involved in many true crime cases. So it felt like really good detail. So she's one of my main sources I'm using. I bring her up because Randall Woodfield, after he was incarcerated and she released this book about three years after he was convicted and he tried to sue her. Oh, for telling a story. (laughs) (laughs) Because she makes a lot of comments and she... I guess psychoanalyzes or something. Yeah. She psychoanalyzes what she thinks he went after women and mm-hmm. he didn't like that because he's okay. a very proud guy. So I think it's funny. He sued her for $12 million and the judge looked at it and just kind of laughed and threw it right out. <laughs> well, good. Okay. So let's talk about Randy and where he came from. So interestingly enough, like I said, he was the all American good boy. Like he doesn't have, when we talk about serial killers, usually there are, you know, they talk about the trifecta. Mm-hmm. Randall does not have anything that would lead you to ever believe he would become the monster that he did. Weird. So he was born on December 26th, 1950. So his mom actually went into labor on Christmas Day. Okay. His mom picked out the name Randall and she wanted to call him Randy. 
It's been said many times that he hated the nickname Randy. He didn't feel like it sounded distinguished enough. So that's why we're calling him Randy. So I'm going to call him Randy. Okay. So his parents were Walter Jack and Donna Jean Woodfield. Uh, Walter was 27 and Donna Jean was 24 when Randall was born. They were an upper middle class family. His dad worked for Pacific Northwest Bell. He had been there for he worked there for 30 plus years and made very good money. His mom was a stay at home mom. This is typical 50s household. Okay. He had two older sisters uh, named Susan and Nancy, and his parents were so excited when they finally got the baby boy they wanted. Right. His dad worked long hours at Pacific Northwest Bell, and so his mom did most of the child rearing and discipline. There is a lot said in the book that I read that she was a perfectionist and he felt the need to please his mom. So there was a little bit of mom-son dynamic there. Gotcha. It also came up that he was very jealous of his older sisters because they were quite a bit older than him and they were allowed to go out and do things. Oh. You know, like go to the mall. And he had a female babysitter that he really resented that his sisters got to go out and he had to stay home with a babysitter. So they think some of that may have started. He was in a female dominated household at the most part because it was always his mom and his sisters. Right. His dad was at work all the time. Mm hmm. So that could have fed into why it's so weird towards women. That's so weird when you think about stuff like that. I remember when I was just thinking about having children in general, I was like, I'd love there to be an older sister and then event. And I'm like, but it's like these little weird scenarios that it doesn't matter which way these children are born, really. Like, it's just going to be dependent on him. Like, look at him. He's like, well, they were older and I didn't like it. And I wanted to be as old as they were. It was. And I wanted to go out. And something about his mom, he just it it comes up repeatedly that he just felt like he needed to please his mom. I mean, I feel like that's also very typical back then, too. Like you had a clean house. Yeah, they were like one of the upper class families. They went to all the, you know, picnics, all the town events. Everybody liked them. The Woodfields were, you know, the perfect little family. That's such a last name, too. Oh, the Woodfields. The Woodfields. And they lived in, they settled in Otter Rock, Oregon. So that sounds perfect, too. It's a small little town. The closest big city is Corvallis, which I believe is where the University of Oregon is located. So they were in this small little town, making good money. Mom was at home being the 50s housewife. Randall, or Randy, Randy. He was actually like the favorite. He was the only boy. He got a lot of special treatment. Why is he so upset? I don't know. And then his parents had high hopes for him. And he was very good looking. He was a beautiful baby. He had dark brown curly hair. Mm. He was just a good looking boy. And they realized from a young age that he was athletically inclined. And this would come into play as he got into high school. He was like the number one athlete. And he could do it all. He could do football. He could do basketball. He broke records in track and field. Did he hit his head? He played baseball. There was nothing about a frontal cortex. Oh, he's playing all those (laughs) sports. I'm sure he hit his head somewhere. Maybe that's where this started. So in the 1950s, family ego. Sorry. I know we can psychoanalyze this guy. I'm going to go into a little bit here (laughs) and what we think. So we know he was trying to be perfect for his mom. Mm -hmm. The other thing in the 1950s that families never talked about was sex. And this was a very quiet family. Dad was never home. Dad wasn't like hanging out with his son. And there was a story where Randy tried to tell his dad about some girls at school. And he was talking about how he heard some of them were loose. Oh, (laughs) goodness. And his dad basically shut him down and said, we don't want to talk. We don't talk about that kind of stuff in this house. So he was very sexually repressed. Okay. 
he had some kind of sexual confusion or something at the young age of just 13 years old. Randy started exposing himself to girls. Anne Rule in her book believes after studying him that he had some kind of doubts about his masculinity and wanted to prove like needed to be like look at my dick he needed girls to look at his penis see this see this yeah and it was rumored that he had quite a large penis oh great so you know all those dick pics that everybody likes he would totally this was in person (laughs) he would totally be the guy on um match.com that would send you a dick pic for Uh, sure no one ever wants that okay no no one unless it's asked for specifically (laughs) so at 13 he was running around newport exposing himself multiple times per day in various places he would stand in corners and wait for young girls to come by and jump out and be like look at this and how old was he at the time doing this you said 13 oh my the fuck (laughs) he was in a small town so he got caught Uh, pretty quickly and people know him So this is happening while he is also the popular athlete. But he would choose women and girls that I guess didn't go to school. I don't know. Oh my gosh. Anyways, the cops did catch him at one point and they brought him to his parents and said, this is happening. And the parents said, he's just a young boy. He's going through a sexual awakening. And we won't talk to him about it. So and yeah, let's push it under the rug. Flinging it around. Essentially. Yeah. And because he was the star athlete, the cops didn't want to press charges, send him to reform school because he had, you know, his whole life ahead of him. Right. And it's just whatever. He's not touching girls. He's not hurting them. He's just showing off his penis. No big deal. <laughs> Once again, as I said before, we should look at odd behavior. I mean, this yeah, could have been stopped. odd behavior. Yeah. They did mention that he should go to therapy. But once again, in the 1950s, therapy was not something that parents embraced. And so they never Mm. sent him to any kind of therapy. Okay. To them, it's like, oh, he's obsessed with his member. Right. And they don't want to talk about it. They're embarrassed. And we're sitting here laughing too. So it's like, those are, if that, it's hard. I don't know what I would do if I had a a child. I mean, if my child was running around town and showing his dick to everybody, I think (laughs) I might want to do some therapy. But this was the 1950s. It was a different time. Maybe everybody was showing their dick. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know about that. Even after Randy was arrested and convicted for all of his crimes, his parents still say that there was no indication that their child was a sexual deviant while he lived under their roof. Randy was super popular in school. He was a good student. He was an amazing athlete. He made the All-State football team as a junior, which is not common. He was chosen as Boy of the Month for the Rotary Club. This is so weird because he sounds just like someone I knew from high school. Did he show you his member? He did. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't ask for it. <laughs> but that's what's weird about it. I mean, he he's married and has a family now, but I'm like, are you describing someone I know? This is strange. Maybe. Sorry. Now everybody that I went to high school with at one point is going to be like, oh, we know exactly who you're talking about because there's only one person that did all that. <laughs> So Randy was described as one of the best looking kids in high school. All the most desirable girls wanted to date him. And he was very popular and able to date anyone he wanted. His Mm. dream was to become an NFL player. And as a wide receiver, he was actually one of the best in the whole state. He was recruited to play at colleges. He had a bright future ahead of him. Yikes. Parents are proud of this boy. The whole town's proud of him. But he just needed to. But can't keep it in his pants. Yeah. 
So he ended up at Treasure Valley College and he was captain on the varsity football team, on the varsity basketball team. He did weightlifting and even broke the record for long jump and track there. So continuing to do well. So his best friend was Rob Schaefer and they were friends from high school and they went off to college together and were college roommates. Rob Schaefer has nothing bad to say about Randy. He said the only time he saw Randy behave oddly is that he stole some cassette tapes from a guy in their dorm and then he lied about it. <gasps> the horror. Oh my goodness. My daughter lied recently at school and she got in she's trouble. Gonna so she's going to be a serial killer. It's a sign. Okay. Making notes. And this is the odd thing about him as you go on. Like everybody's going to say all these kinds of things. Like he never did anything. Oh, he sounds fun so far. So his first serious girlfriend, her name was Sharon McNeil. She was his girlfriend and they were in college, so they weren't real serious. So she was still, you know, hanging out with other guys. And at one point she said, you know what? I don't want to be your girlfriend anymore. I want to date around, you know, normal college behavior. You said this is his first like this was his first girl. love. Okay. He, he okay. dated girls in high school, but this was okay. like the first one. And he seems to be unable to get over her. She broke up with him. He could not handle it. He was obsessive towards her. And he actually broke into her parents' house and completely vandalized her room, like threw clothes everywhere, just, you know, went in and tore the whole room wow. up. Why is this sounding like Ted Bundy? Isn't that similar? Like it was could a be. girl. But I think it's because he fell in love, you know, his first. And that's what started the long brown hair parted down the middle, like kind of weird obsession he had. We will find with Randy, he can't handle any kind of rejection from a woman. It really hurts his ego. Wonderful. So he broke into Sharon's room. He stole. The only thing taken from her room was a stuffed animal that he had given to her. He was arrested, but he was found not guilty by a jury trial because there was no physical evidence linking him to the vandalization. Because he took the teddy bear? Yeah, he took the teddy bear, but they had no like way to prove <laughs> that it was actually him. They, yeah. It was all circumstantial. Okay. I'm pretty sure it was him. Who else is it going to be? <laughs> Who else goes in and steals? And, uh, and then it deliberately only messes up one girl's room. But the way that our legal system works, there has to be evidence. And Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. You're going to find in this case what's so infuriating is this guy could have been caught so many times before all these people died. Yeah, because but he's just this good looking kid that is like constantly getting off with things. We trust beautiful people. And it's a dangerous thing in our society. Like it, they have done studies. If you're a beautiful yeah. person, you're right. trusted more. Sure. Yeah. And you get out of things. And that looks that's why it's good to be mediocre like Kendra <laughs> and I. You want to be middle of the road. Exactly. So Sharon had to get an unlisted phone number because he would bombard her with calls and just be like, why did you leave me? Come back to me. Ten years after she had last seen Randy, she received a letter from him and it included a nude photograph of him. Ten years later, can you imagine like your oh ex-boyfriend from 10 years ago? You just open your mail and there his naked body is. Gross. Nobody do that. Gracias. She had never given him any indication of interest after they broke up in 1970. <laughs> and 10 years later, she's still getting Christmas cards and naked photos. However, she said while he was annoying, she never really felt frightened by his attention. She, she just thought it was mental. Yeah, she just thought he thing. was obsessed with her, but she didn't yeah. feel like he was ever going to do okay. anything to her. Even though he broke in and vandalized her room, I think that's weird, but... I don't think there was just a whole lot to go off of yet. No. So during the summer, off from school, he went to work in Toledo, right along the coast of Oregon, and he found a girlfriend there. He was in college, 
The girl he decided to set his attentions on was in eighth grade. Wait a second. She was in eighth grade? She was in eighth grade. He was a college student. 12? 13? 13, probably. Oh my gosh. So he's 20. She's 13. And we'll see this become a trend. Happens more often than you think. So she met him at the football field. He was just there playing like a rec league. And she saw him as a big brother. He was 20 and she was 14. Sorry, I have this written down. So she was 14 years old. He was six years older. But that's a big difference in like mental state. It is. He's in college. She's still in junior high. we've been talking about this a lot. Like being that age and like just older men and stuff. I'm like. And you think it's flattering. I look back and I'm like, wow, that's just. Randy would find that he could easily, and I'll talk more about this in detail, but he could impress these younger girls. Sure. Of course he could. It started out platonic. She looked at him as a big brother, and then he started asking her to go to movies and and kind of like the grooming situation. Mm -hmm. And at one point, he asked if he could spend the night with her, and he got her drunk. He tried to get her to sleep with him. And she said, I'm a nice girl. I'm 14. I don't do that. So he said, that's fine if you just do other things. And so she did other things with him, but would not let him sleep with her. And she said that he never really pressured her. So she thought he was a good guy. Like she flat out said, I don't want to have sex with you. And he didn't press the issue. Like she didn't feel frightened. Okay. One odd thing he did do. He asked Tracy to call his ex-girlfriend Sharon. And be like, I'm in eighth grade and I am doing naughty things with him. Are you impressed? He loved <laughs> to do this kind of stuff because just to, to make her feel like she's missing out that he's having know. other like, You'll find he does this a lot. Relationships. So he's very manipulative with women and he gets them to believe that he was falsely accused. So he had Tracy. He told her that, you know, Sharon's parents wouldn't let him call her anymore. And he had been falsely accused of breaking into her room. But he's like, I just went to her room and asked for my stuffed animal back that I gave her. Poor me. And Tracy's like, okay. And he's like, I just want to talk to her and explain what happened. So she doesn't think that I did this. And so Tracy's feeling sorry for him. He can't call Sharon because she's changed her number a thousand times and he's blocked. (laughs) And so Tracy called his ex-girlfriend for him. So those are things that he would do. Ooh, highly, highly obsessed with Sharon. Yes. However, he also became obsessed with Tracy when he returned to college after seeing her that summer. He would write her letters from school. Uh, She says she remembers him as a funny, kind and good looking guy and really just saw him as like a brother figure that she messed around with every now and then. She did say that he always mentioned pressure to live up to what his parents wanted him to be so, so this he goes was, back to the mom thing he was being a little bit more honest with this with tracy yes than he was being otherwise right with his 14 year old i girlfriend. see that too like with older men and younger girls they feel like they can be more honest with them and then the girls are like wow he's, he's sharing so he's much so with deep me. and sharing so much with me She did say he also cared almost too much about what others thought of him. So he was very... I can see that. He needed approval from outside. I think probably had a low self-esteem and looked for others to build him up. Well, you said that something about when he started exposing himself. Yeah, we're about to get there again. Oh, okay. I have a feeling we're going to cover this several times. (laughs) Yeah. He just can't keep it in his pants, for sure. (laughs) For him. Literally. (laughs) 
Tracy continued an on and off friendship with Randy for years and years. And this is something you'll see in the story as well. Like once he met someone, they stayed in his life a long time and he wanted to hold on to everyone. Mm. And he would write letters and make sure that these girls never forgot him and always remembered him. She says when he was convicted, she could not reconcile that the man accused of all these horrible crimes was that same sweet boy she knew that summer. It's it's weird, but they just choose a few that they're good with, that they would never do anything with, never harm in any way. And in reading about Randy, he always had more girl friends yeah. than male friends. Right. So he was very good with the ladies, both as just platonic friends and dating. In 1971, he decided he needed to move to a better school if he wanted to make the dream of becoming an NFL player a reality. He was not going to be discovered at Treasure Valley. So he moved to Portland State. This took him to a larger city. When he moved to Portland State, he made an abrupt change. And I think this is him trying to fight his inner demons. He became super religious. He got involved with the crusade for Christ. Mm -hmm. He stopped having sex. And he would only date Christian girls who were virgins. He focused all of his attention into sports, football, track, etc. Basically was trying to repress his sexual, his sexuality, which we know that's not going to end well, right? No. So while he was doing this and pretending to be the squeaky clean religious guy, Mm. he was still fighting the urge towards exhibitionism. He could easily drive into Portland or Vancouver, Washington, both large towns, and he could go back to exposing himself. So he did that. I don't understand the science behind or just, you know, the psychological thought process behind taking down your pants and just showing your genitals to somebody. He liked the shock value from it. He liked especially accosting younger girls that had maybe not seen an erect penis before. Yeah. That wasn't something that was out there that much. And so he loved seeing little girls blush. Blush. Because they saw or or shriek. Just just react in general. It was all about the reaction. He got off on that. Mm. So in 1972, he was arrested for exposure in Vancouver. He was charged and convicted, but because there had no there had been no previous arrests, they looked at the fact that he had been a star athlete and he was enrolled in college and they said, "You know what? It's just a boy being a boy." And they let him off. You know those boys being boys, just whipping it out. Wow. So Portland State never knew that he was charged with exposure in Vancouver because Portland was in Oregon. That was up in Washington. They didn't talk about it. So never knew. He once again just continued going to religious meetings. He took a mission trip with the Campus Crusade for Christ to Lake Tahoe one summer. His parents became concerned at how obsessed he seemed with religion. His parents were not religious people themselves. And his, Interesting. his dad actually was most concerned about how over the top he went with religion because it was just such a complete 180 like he just well maybe you should have talked to him about sex when he asked you to the one thing about randy is that although he was exposing himself in public once again he was a good looking man he wasn't Mm. when women saw it they would kind of giggle but he wouldn't get reported that often if he was creepier i think he would have been reported more but because he was like a good looking man they just say oh that's funny i saw that and most of them would just write it off yeah i think it 
it would just in their head be like a confusion. They thought he was an innocent prankster college boy. Oh, you don't think that if a guy's popping it out in the middle of and you don't public, know him and you didn't ask for it and you're not expecting it. That Sorry. is actually a sexual offender. Oh, yeah. Was it Pee Wee Herman that got in trouble in a in an adult film? Yeah. No, no, he was at an adult a theater. Movie. Yeah. A movie theater. Oh, mm-hmm. it was an adult theater. Yeah. Like, it was like a porno. That's funny. My my entire childhood, I thought it was a regular movie. <laughs> that would have been even worse. <laughs> He's just watching um, The Lion King and whips it out. <laughs> We're back. Remember that dinosaur movie? We're back. So he continued to expose himself. He was arrested again in Portland in 1973. So one year later, after the Vancouver, they sentenced him to five months in jail, but he never served any time. And they said he would have one year probation, but nobody ever followed up. They said he should go to therapy but he never did. One year later in 1974, he got arrested again for indecent exposure. This time they gave him five years probation and they also mandated counseling again. He never went to the counseling that time either, but he did check in for all of his probation. So he was seen as a upstanding member that was trying to get better. He was an upstanding member. (laughs) (laughs) And he had an upstanding (laughs) member. So because records showed that he had never actually touched or hurt a woman and he was such a good student, a star athlete, and he had a good work ethic because he always maintained good jobs, they thought their probation would cure him. Of what? Showing his junk. Why would probation cure anybody? I think that they just thought this was a phase. Well, just the fact that he got in trouble and he's like, wow, it's just over. They're like, this is just a funny college guy who thinks it's funny to show his dick. You know, guys have an obsession with their penis or something. I I remember reading about sex offenders and and them talking about indecent exposure. And even me, I discounted that. I'm like, oh, that's not really. But I think. But if you're doing it all the time. This guy's doing it all the time. And as we'll see, it does escalate. Okay. Because while they get a thrill at first from girls just laughing or blushing or shrieking eventually eventually you're gonna get mad that they're laughing it's just like a (laughs) it's just like a drug right you need to get the same thrill you gotta keep amping it up Mm -hmm. in february 20th 1974 his dreams finally came true he was seen in playing for portland state and the green bay packers actually offered him a contract to play for them or for the chance to play for them okay so he was given sixteen thousand dollars up front And then room and board for training and regular season. He would make bonuses if he actually made the roster. So they were looking for 47 people that would join the team and travel with them. He would get bonuses if he of $3,000. And if he could catch 25 passes in the regular season, he would get another $2,000. In the 1970s, this was a decent amount of money. Mm -hmm. However, for him to sign this contract, he had to keep himself in peak physical condition, became a representative of the Green Bay Packers. So, of course, he had to wear a coat and tie, went out in public. He had to be careful about interviews he would do. Basically, just continue to be an upstanding member of society. Without showing your upstanding number. (laughs) (laughs) There was no clause around morals or criminal background, interestingly enough. I think they assumed... Well, maybe back then there just wasn't as huge a pool of people to choose from. Right. And so if they included that, they wouldn't get good talent. Randy was excited. His parents were so proud of him. He got his dream. He had the chance to play for the Green Bay Packers. He drove his car to Wisconsin. He stayed in the residence hall. And this was probably the best time of his life. Unfortunately, after trying out, 
did not make the team. Maybe that would have helped. However, he was one of the best wide receivers. There is question about why he hmm. was not chosen. And yeah. I think the reason was the Packers declined to say why he was cut. And the Green Bay Police Department refuses to release any records they have on Randy officially. But there is a lot of speculation that he continued to expose himself in mm. Wisconsin. Okay, There are actually some missing women in Wisconsin that they have now connected him back to. Mm. And I don't have all their details, but he wasn't yeah. being a good boy. He may have had a spree, but this is... This is before. This is yeah. Before. He didn't make the Green Bay Packers, but he did stay in Wisconsin and he played for what they call the farm team. So it's like the the minor league team. They oh. were called the Manitowoc Chiefs, and that would give him a chance if he could prove himself to eventually make it to the Packers. Okay. He played one season from September through December 1974, and then they unexplainably let him go as well. Because so I'm I think sure, he was doing things. Yeah. Rumors that came back later when he was convicted as the I-5 killer, some of those police districts from Wisconsin did release records to the detectives involved, and it did come back that there were 10 to 20 incidents of him with indecent exposure in Wisconsin while he lived there. Gosh, he needs a chastity belt. (laughs) (laughs) He needs it locked up, right? So he he has to ask the teacher if he can go to the bathroom. (laughs) I did not know this case was going to be this funny. I know. Like when I when I chose it, I did not know it was going to be like a dude pulling his pee-pee out. <laughs> You're like, I didn't even know that until I sat down with Jessica. <laughs> why did people decide that? Why did I choose this? Uh, Kendra choosing this case is not a reflection of her It's true. talking about pee-pees. It's not. I did not know what I was getting into when I saw this, uh, but it's interesting still. I don't think he is a serial killer that is talked about very often. Probably because they don't want to talk about dick so much. I am not afraid to talk about dick. <laughs> Let that be known. I will talk about it in, in certain <laughs> ways. I don't know. There will not be many dick conversations on this <laughs> no. episode. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> it's good to laugh, though. We've had a couple serious ones. Yeah. So I didn't know this one would be as funny as it's turning out to be. It is not going to be funny when we get into the victims right now. I I don't assume so. Right now it seems innocent, but that's something that, yeah, we need to pay more attention to. Innocent. It's not innocent. No, these girls are probably traumatized that saw him. I mean, maybe if you like actually lived like in one of those colonies where you're just naked all the time. A commune type. Yeah. Why didn't he? Why don't they nudist just, colony? It was around the right, right time. He could just go to a nudist. Because then because nobody would no give him the shock value. value. Okay, fine. After he was let go, he had to drive back to Portland. He was obviously very disappointed. He felt like he let his parents down. He fell into a deep depression and he was angry. He felt like it was not his fault. He felt like he had been done wrong. I feel like he's probably a narcissist in a lot, obviously, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. And so he can't take any fault. Like I said, to this day, he still won't admit guilt for all of these things he's done, even though DNA mm. shows he did. Anyways, that's just me being a psychiatrist. He only had three semesters of college left, but he lost all motivation to finish. So he never graduated from college. Randy is now 25 years old. All his friends have graduated from college. They're getting married. They're building strong careers. His best friend became a professor. He has other friends who are going to medical school. And he's working part-time for a trucking company, barely making it. And he starts bartending at night. He was at the point where he just felt like he was going nowhere and his dreams were done. 
So we are into early 1975 now. That all went by real fast. So 25-year-old Randy is here, and he's depressed. So in early 1975, Portland police started dealing with a situation in Dunaway Park. Several women had reported being accosted at knife point while out on runs or walks in Dunaway Park. The attacker would expose himself, and then he would force the women to perform oral sex on him. He would then steal their purses. It was known that he would sneak up behind them so they wouldn't even know he was coming. He was waiting in the bushes. Mm -hmm. They would run by and then all of a sudden there was a knife at their neck. All of the descriptions said he was a tall, good looking young man. Can you imagine too? Like nowadays, I don't think it matters. But like back then or something, just the shock of like seeing what he looked like and then that happening to you and just... But now I don't care. Any man. Right. Unfortunately. <laughs> I dis- Every man. I distrust every man. I know it sucks. And I know men hate to hear that, but yeah. there's just decades and decades of history that yep. show women can't trust men. I'm sorry. And it's all the we've a- talked yeah. about it several times. I never know what makes the episodes. This was hard as like thinking back to us talking because then we cut stuff yeah, out. True. <laughs> you never know what actually makes it. But, you know, we all women have had history of shit with men. Yes. That's not OK. So not. it makes it very, very difficult to trust anybody. Yeah, it really does. And that sucks, too. And I'm raising a daughter on this. I know. Hard. It's hard. This was happening often enough that they started staking out police in Dunaway Park to try and catch this perpetrator but he was smart enough to know that there were police there and so they realized that wasn't going to draw him out so they found a woman that worked for the police department and she was going to be the decoy so she was to walk along the path alone at night they gave her eight one dollar bills that were marked to put in her purse and she had a signal on her so that she could and they would have cops nearby to come if she was attacked. She went a few times and finally she drew him out on March 5th, 1975. He felt her up so he didn't get as far as he did with the others. And then she was able to signal and her backup officers came out and grabbed him and they found that it was Randall Woodfield. He had a paring knife and a starter pistol on him. He stole her purse and uh, that was actually how they were able to convict him because the marked $1 bills were in there. Mm. So he actually did get taken in and convicted because he was, this really frustrates me, because he was a star athlete and had no previous criminal record, he was only charged with first degree robbery. They dropped all charges of oral sodomy that had happened to the previous women. So, yeah, that's fucked up. And what's really scary about that is she only went three times and it was enough for this to happen. What really bothers me, because he was not charged with the sexual assault, he was not registered as a sex offender in the system. Yeah. So when he starts committing crimes later in life, he's not even looked at because he's just seen as a robber. Oh, jeez. When he was captured, the police psychologist that was there, he basically started crying to them and said he can't control himself of his sexual urges. He said they were out of his control and his life had collapsed and he thought it was because he took steroids and that was just causing him to have this inability to stop exposing himself and assaulting women. Is that a side effect of steroids? He wasn't taking steroids at 13. Oh, that's true. (laughs) Yeah, that was just him trying to get sympathy because he's good at that. Narcissistic. He came across as actually wanting treatment. And he even told the psychologist, he says, I just need to be locked up. I can't trust myself. They actually gave him an intelligence test while he was in jail. 
and it showed that his IQ was only 100. Hmm. They also mentioned in their write-up that he seemed very detached from his crimes. It was almost like he thought it was a different version of himself that was committing these crimes. Multiple personalities. I think so. I think there was part of that. So he really maybe truly in one mindset didn't think he was doing it. And then the other. Yeah. It was like bad Randall who was taking over and whipping it out. Yeah, they actually say later on um, in one of the interviews I saw, they said when they talked to Randall, he was the good version. And when they talked to Randy, he was the bad version. So it seemed like there was like this. It wasn't a difference in names, though. It was the same name. Randall versus Randy. Yeah, it's just a variation, though. Yeah. Usually, isn't it like a completely different yeah for the most part he doesn't ever get diagnosed as schizophrenic or anything like that but maybe it was his tactic to just be like oh i don't remember randy must have done that we didn't have an internal conversation we didn't introduce ourselves (laughs) (laughs) he seemed very detached from his crimes as i said and it seemed concerning now because he had escalated from exposure to actually touching his victims now Mm -hmm. and that shows a potential psychotic escalation right So the evaluation was Randall Woodfield is a very serious threat to the community and he needs to be institutionalized. Success of this treatment seems very dim if he is to stay outside. Dim. Dim. They didn't think he could be treated. Yeah. Well, he's proved it like hundreds of times already just with the exposure stuff. So on June 10th, 1975... Randy was sentenced to 10 years in prison. The judge did bring up that he was upset that they had chosen to drop the sexual charges. He had the opinion that he needed to spend the full 10 years in an institution for sexually dangerous offenders in the Oregon Psychiatric Hospital. Mm. But because he had only been convicted on robbery charges, he ended up in the state penitentiary in Salem, Oregon. Oh, and then being pent up too. Right. You get out. You just need to satisfy that. So he was not a good prisoner. He received a lot of disciplinary tickets. He was rude to the guards. They said he had a bad attitude. He thought he was better than all the other inmates. He really resented that there were female guards in his area. And he brings this up multiple interviews, even Hmm. like in his 50s and stuff. He it makes him mad that women are allowed to be above male inmates. Sometimes it would it surprises me to have a female guard in an all men wing or wherever whatever is happening there. He did take the opportunity though because there were females around, he would expose himself to the female guards. And he can't get rearrested for it. Right. So in a way it was like it was it wasn't fueling him. Yeah, it was. Great. Like he would get excited if they would come into the shower area. There were reports that like the female guards would walk by his jail cell and he'd be completely clothed. And then when they walked back by, he'd be standing there naked. That just creeped me out. That just, that really just creeped me out. So yeah, he's a real creeper. Okay. But he also resented them and didn't like the fact that women once again were controlling his life. Right. During group therapy, he had a female therapist and she was trying to get to the heart of his sexual fantasies And he looked at her with cold eyes and said, I'll tell you my sexual fantasy if you tell me yours first. Mm. He got written up for that. Of course. He grew a beard, which was not allowed while in prison. He got written up for that. And then he also had high top Nikes. Uh, So he was very into how he looked, as I mentioned before. Even in jail. Even in jail. And he had one of, I don't know who smuggled him in, but somebody smuggled in these high top Nikes and all the other inmates made fun of him because it looked ridiculous when he's in like. He's like, I like my shoes. Why can't you have a beard? 
I guess because they can hide things. I, oh, I think it's true. just, I don't know. Yeah, maybe don't they know can hide sure. stuff in it. So because he had only been convicted of the robbery charge, he did not carry the stigma of being a sexual pervert, which is something that even in prison makes you not so popular. Right. So he made lots of friends in this venture in prison, and he will meet with some of them when he gets on the outside again. Um, he also took college extension courses while in prison, and he joined the Christian Bible study groups because mm-hmm. he was going to bring that back. His family at this time mm-hmm. would still visit him while he was in prison. They only knew about the robbery charges. They had no idea about the sexual assaults. Wow. So he kept that hidden. And because it wasn't on the record, there was no way for them to know unless he told them. Right. He also wrote many, many letters, including to his girlfriend from that summer named Tracy Connors, who was the eighth grader that he dated. Mm -hmm. He wrote her. He would ask her to do crazy things. He was asking her to like sell wallets he was making while in prison. He was trying to like make money on the outside. (laughs) She said it was really bizarre. And she's and at this point, she also doesn't know. The other parts of things. Nobody knows. Everybody on the outside knows he's in prison, but he's telling everyone, you know, I was unfairly framed. So he was going to one on one therapy during this time while in prison. And they were trying to talk him through what might have caused his proclivity for this sexual exposure. He theorized that it was from his first girlfriend rejecting him. Mm. And he said he felt vindictive towards all women in general because he just couldn't get over that heartbreak. Guess not. However, this was flawed thinking, as the psychiatrist pointed out, because his exposure started well before Sharon. Right. In 1976, he told the therapist he had solved his problem. He was never going to have sex again. He said he always felt a little guilty and that sex was dirty. He said he would only seek women for spiritual reasons in the future and that there was more to life than sex. He wanted to turn his life around, find a wife and raise a family. We've got to have sex for that. (laughs) He convinced the therapist that he accepted he was guilty. So he became con smart is what they call it. He realized what he needed to say to get them to let him out. And so that's what he did. He convinced them that he accepted his guilt. He needed help. And he promised he would find help as soon as they let him out of prison. He convinced them that his family would support him and that he could get his old job back. He also said he had learned to accept rejection from women And he said, I understand where I went wrong. I'm 27 now, and I think I can overcome it with the right help. A male therapist decided he was honest and good and that he was no longer a threat to society. Okay. So they let him go on work release. They said he was not a violence risk. And so in 1979, only four years after he was locked up for a sentence of 10 years, where the judge had said he was a scary sex offender but that wasn't on his record Mm -hmm. they let him out of prison and this is where it all really goes downhill yeah so as soon as he got out in july of 1979 he decided to reconnect with his high school friends and girlfriends and he saw that it had been 10 years and he decided to become the chairman to run the 10-year high school reunion Mm, okay everyone thought he or remembered him as being the all-American football jock, you know, popular Mm -hmm. guy. Some of them didn't even know he had been in prison. And those that he did talk to, anyone that asked, he said he had robbed some photo map booths because he was hard on money and he had gotten caught in a sting operation by the cops. So it was like, no big deal. You know, I wasn't doing anything that bad. Just a little money. I needed money. (laughs) So then people feel sorry for him. I mean, he only got eight bucks. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Out of a photo... (laughs) You have to rob a lot. <laughs> Nobody had any reason to doubt him. Like he didn't right. seem like 
a creepy sex offender. Of course not. As we all know, he, he loves women being in power over him. His parole officer assigned was a woman mm-hmm. and he had to report to her and he was not very good at that. She didn't keep track of him, but also they didn't see him as a threat. So she didn't really chase him down. So he was pretty much, even though he's on work release and he was supposed to be watched very closely, Mm -hmm. he was not. Okay. So while at the 10 year reunion, he ran into Sherry Ayers. So this was a classmate that he had known since second grade and she had written to him while he was in prison. They were just platonic friends as far as anyone knew. Ooh, second grade. Great. And it goes back. He was quite the player. He had a little black book, if you remember. Oh. The little black book. Okay. He had over 255 names in it. <laughs> he had no problem picking up women. Like I said, he liked to keep tabs on them. He would call them. He would write them letters. He was quite the little Casanova. He realized he was working a job at a manufacturing company and he decided to move his career towards bartending because he wanted more access to women. He never tied himself down with one girl. He never dated a girl longer than a month or so. While he was out having all of his fun, he did contract herpes. While he was a bartender, he loved to allow underage girls to come in and drink at the bar. <laughs> yep. A lot of his coworkers said that he had a real affection towards younger girls. He ended up dating a 17-year-old cocktail waitress named Lucy Grant. And they moved in together. He was 29 at the time. Wow. He worked at a place called the Cheerful Tortoise. Coworkers noticed even though he was dating Lucy, he still gravitated towards girls around 16 to 17 years old. They said he basically, one of his coworkers described him as a dumb blonde. They said he had the conversation skills of an 18 year old. So it's almost like he just never developed past high school. So maybe that's why he was still going for younger girls. I also read that, you know, women his own age would tire of him quickly Hmm. because he couldn't have a real conversation. Right. He wasn't going anywhere in life. And so he would, of course, go after these young, naive girls. Okay. I knew a couple of those dumb blondes. (laughs) Yeah. He was good looking and not much else. (laughs) So one girl he dated for a few months that came out after he was arrested. She was 22 years old. He met her. She was a bank teller. They went out a few times. She mentioned that he was just so obsessed with female breasts that it was a turnoff to her. Like he wouldn't stop talking about it. She said he was just overly obsessed with women's bodies. And yeah, you don't want to date a guy who's talking about that all the time. No. She said he wasn't very smart and he wore thin real quick. For sure. When she dumped him, coworkers reported him coming into the bar and just talking shit about her and saying all these horrible things he was going to do to her. And he wouldn't let it go for a few weeks. And they'd only dated for like a week. So coworkers just thought that was a little off. Right. Yep. He kept getting hired at different bars, but he also kept getting fired. So he couldn't keep a job. Okay. They never really went into detail why, but maybe because he was letting underage girls drink. Maybe he was creepy. I don't know. But maybe he was the type that was like touching them when they walked past. And yeah, stuff. I imagine just he too was many just people annoying. complaining. He was very smothering type yeah. guy. So he worked at this place called the Fawcett Tavern in Beaverton, Oregon. He was hired on April 9th. And then they let him go in October. He felt like he was done wrong within a week of being let go. He was also a manager. So he had a key to like all the back rooms and everything. Within a week of him being let go from this bar, $3,000 went missing from the cash register. Mm. Being that he was one of the only people who had a key other than the owners, they knew he was the one responsible. He denied the theft. 
and he felt furious for being accused and he wrote a threatening letter to his former employer. He did admit later to a female friend that he was the one who robbed them. He knows he does wrong, but he (laughs) doesn't want to be called out and he denies it. After getting fired and the reported theft, he had a hard time finding a job. Nobody wants Mm -hmm. to hire him. So he got a job at 7-Eleven. And he also got fired from there. Like he couldn't keep a job anywhere. And so he's 29 years old and he's working at a 7-Eleven. Okay. What year are we in now? It's 1979. Okay. So he decides. 7-Eleven's been around a while, huh? Apparently. In 1979, he decides that he's a good looking guy and he should try out for Playgirl magazine. He sure makes a lot of decisions on, you know what? I'm a good looking guy. He's very full of himself. Narcissist. (laughs) So he sent a shot of himself greased up in baby blue bikini panties. Oh, wow. (laughs) He was chosen by the magazine. Of course. For Guy Next Door. Okay. And they said, you're in the finalists. We'll let you know if we decide to publish you. (laughs) They never did, thankfully. I'm Mm -hmm. sure they're very thankful. This picture would come into play because he would make multiple copies and share it with lots of women in the future he took the time to make a legit photo (laughs) i could not find the photo anywhere (laughs) i wish i could because i would totally put it on our instagram (laughs) that's funny at least he was wearing panties (laughs) it's reported in so many places that he had been a playgirl model i want to make it very clear randy woodfield wished he was a playgirl model he never made it okay Well, that's the thing about like reporting. They, they'll they just say something, even if they know it is completely untrue. Just because it sounds good. Just because it sounds better and it there will was, sell the story. They also said he was an NFL athlete. He wasn't. He never made the team. He tried so, out. Yeah, he was, was a, he was a failure at everything he tried. So yeah. fuck him. He's well, not the to only be celebrated he, in any way. The only reason he failed at everything he tried was for one reason and one reason only. What's that? Well, we already know. We've said it. He can't keep his member member in his pants. Pants. <laughs> Just a basic decency. Really? So in August of 1980, he met another 17-year-old girl named Julie Wrights. He became good friends with her because he would allow her and her other underage friends to drink in the bar. Mm. So a story about him. He got Julie very intoxicated and he asked to come over to her mother's townhouse. And she was there with another friend. After they were drinking, the girls fell asleep and they slept together in their bed and he went to sleep in Julie's mom's room. The next morning they woke up and he had crawled into bed with them Mm. and was getting a little fresh and they told him, no, thank you. And he left. So he wasn't, I bring this up because he doesn't seem violent. Like when girls tell him no, he doesn't do things, at least at this point. So, but only to the girls he he knows. knows. Yes. Okay. So Julie rejected him, but they continued to like be friends and she continued to go out with him. And then she found out that he was living with this other 17 year old girl named Lucy because he was still with her. So it was like this whole drama. Mm -hmm. I only bring this up because Julie will also come back up. Okay. Soon after this public situation where Julie called him out because she ran into him with Lucy, it was very embarrassing for him. And then Lucy dumped him. So he had now been rejected. He had been dating quite a bit since he got out of prison, but the women kept leaving him. He was never the one that chose to break up. He was always left. And what this did is it gave him this belief that all women would eventually betray him. Mm. So on October 10th, 1980, let's go back to Sherry Ayers. Sherry Ayers was the girl that he knew since second grade. Okay. Okay. 
She graduated in 1969 from Newport High with Randall Woodfield. She was a brilliant, beautiful woman. She was going places. She attended Oregon State University in Corvallis. And then she was going on to University of Oregon Med School. So she was studying to become a doctor. Okay. She was working in Portland as a radiological technologist. On October 10th, 1980, she was found in her home. She had been bludgeoned over the head and then stabbed to death repeatedly in the neck. She's the one that was writing him in in prison though and stuff. Yes. And they had been friends since second grade. They had never dated. There was no reason. Oh, she rejected him again. She didn't reject him. Oh. He had just been rejected by Lucy. So this will be a trend that we see. He gets rejected and he acts out. And he acts out on someone else. On someone else. Okay. We don't know why he chose Cherry. Maybe she did reject him at some point. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe in one of the letters he's like, we should be together when I get out of here. And she said, no. No, thank you. In the investigation of her murder, they found that Randy Woodfield had visited her home many times when they reviewed with her friends and acquaintances during the investigation. Because Randy had a previous prison record, he was questioned closely. The cops found him to be very evasive about his whereabouts during the time of the murder, and they asked him to take a polygraph test. He refused. Okay. The only thing forensic-wise they could find at the crime scene was that there were secretions of ejaculate on her. Oh, gross. They obtained Randy's blood type from the prison records, and they knew that he was a B negative. Now, fortunately, B negative, there's, I think it's only 10% of the population. If it's there, then. Right. So he is, you said he's B negative. Analysis of the secretion did not indicate at the time in 1980 that they came from a man with B negative blood type. Hmm. So at that time, Randy was taken out as a suspect. However, the detective just had this feeling about Randy that he was involved. And he thought perhaps the reason the blood type didn't match the secretions is that she had a boyfriend. So perhaps she could have had sex with her boyfriend earlier that night before Mm. she was murdered. And she may not have actually been sexually assaulted by Randy. And so they think that may be why it didn't match. Yeah. So they didn't have enough physical evidence to charge him. However, the family did finally get justice. And I want to bring this up because this case was open for 26 years. Oh, wow. In 2006, they were able to obtain a sample. They had frozen a sample of the secretions and they were able to test it in 2006. And they definitively were able to connect it to the DNA of Randall Woodfield. Oh, so he did do it then. He did. This is the thing with testing. It's like the blood type and all of that. Yeah. Perhaps they didn't have enough to. Just the test wasn't good enough back then. Right. But it's so upsetting because this was the first known murder that we have of Randall Woodfield. And if he had been caught, all these others wouldn't have happened. Right. Yeah. The detective knew, like, you know, they just had that gut feel, but they had no way to put him behind bars. So very sad. So just one day after. The murder occurred. Randy went to visit his friend from Portland State, a man named Tim Rossi. He and Tim were talking about women. As you do, I guess. And Tim mentioned that he had just been dumped by his girlfriend, Darcy Fix, for another man. Tim wasn't bitter about it. He was just like, you know, these things happen. We grew apart. Right. She's on with another man. I actually know him. He's a great guy. I'm going to go see them. Like, everything's fine. And Tim said, 
Randy went off the handle and he was like, oh. you can't trust fucking women. They'll betray you. She's probably cheating on you. And he said it was almost like Randy had been cheated on by Darcy Just himself. by hearing the story. And he said he could tell a significant change in his friend from when they had been in school together and how Randy was acting now. And he mm-hmm. was like, I don't like this guy. Mm-hmm. Don't want to be friends with him. So that was October 11th. On November 27th, 1980, the day after Thanksgiving... Darcy Fix and her boyfriend, Doug Altig, were found shot to death in their apartment. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) His friend's like, dude, I'm totally cool with it. And he's a good guy. And he goes and kills them. So Tim was, Tim, his friend, was interviewed. And Tim said, I was just at their house on Thanksgiving Day because he was still friends with Darcy. Yeah. And he was there with her and Doug. He did mention to the cops, he was like, was Darcy able to protect herself because her dad had just given her a 32 caliber revolver and she kept Mm. it by her bed. The gun was so old that it had never been registered. So it was an unregistered 32 caliber revolver. When the cops heard this, they did a full search of the apartment and that was the one thing they turned it upside down. They could not find that gun. Oh, okay. When doing the forensics, they found that Darcy and her boyfriend, Doug, had been shot by a 32 caliber revolver. So they're thinking he grabbed that gun to do and to used kill it them. against them. OK. And that gun will come up in future. Mm. This put two female acquaintances of Randall Woodfield killed in a span of just six weeks. However, but he didn't he didn't know Darcy and he did not. And, and so so they're an acquaintance. It comes up friend. later. But Darcy and Doug, they thought was some it's random just weird robbery or something still connected back to him in some way. So this was another cold case. Uh. In 2012, there was new DNA evidence that was used. This case was opened as a cold case investigation and they were able to definitively link Randy to the murder scene. OK, what they believe happened is he showed up at Darcy's house with the intent to rape her, to show her, you know, you're a horrible woman. He was surprised to find her there with her boyfriend. Mm. And that resulted in him just grabbing the gun next to her bed and shooting both of them. Okay. Once again, he has never admitted to this, but DNA evidence links him. Right. So in six weeks, he's now killed a friend that he's had since second grade and now his close friend's ex-girlfriend and her new boyfriend. But it is still 1980 and he is not accused of either of these crimes. So he is still a free man out there running around. It seems weird that his friend from high school would be the first. Yeah, I couldn't find a lot on their relationship. The first would probably be one of the women that he made do stuff to him. Or like Sharon, like his first girlfriend that rejected him. No, because she's the catalyst for a lot of this stuff. And he probably puts her on a pedestal. He does. Yeah. Yeah. So I tell you about these two background stories. They were not convicted until the 2000s, but these were really his start into the escalation to murdering people. Right. And these three people, their lives were taken before he even started his big killing spree that we all know of him for now, which is the I-5 killer. Okay. So that's where I'm going to stop today. I think we've gone through a lot about Randy Woodfield and unfortunately there's a lot more to go through. Mm. You're becoming the two-parter queen. I am. uh, I'll catch up eventually. I'm that person now. (laughs) Uh, Sorry guys. It's just, I've chosen some topics that take a lot more time to talk about, I guess. I have some coming up that I don't think I'll have a choice, but so far it's you. 
And we want to do justice. Yeah. And I didn't know when I chose the I-5 killer that he was quite this horrible yeah. of we a nev- person. <laughs> well, we never really know when we're going into any of this, like how much information is actually going to come out and how right. long our recording is going to be. So it's just you this time. So, yeah, you get to edit I get it to down edit to two. two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're going to stop there and please come back on these two parters. Yes, please, please listen to both. Yeah. Um, History is just as important as all the other stuff that comes after. Especially so. with this guy, because yeah. you're, you want to hear why he ended up the way he did. And quite honestly, because he's such a dark monster of a person, I need to decompress right now. Yeah. And take a break. <laughs> and too. maybe you guys do, too. Yeah. So I want to mention we are on Instagram. We are on TikTok. We're on YouTube and Facebook, all under Lucid Lab podcast, all one word. Please go on there and follow. Please share with your friends yes, if you're enjoying share. us. Yeah. Uh, we really want to build our following up and and reach as many people as possible. And we want to grow organically. We really do. So if you like it, share with anybody you know. I know that we are on every podcast platform, I believe, yes. now. So anything that you listen to, you know, you can share it from there. If you have any, because it's coming up, we're going to be doing our first listeners, our lab reports. Um, I don't know how many we'll be able to include that come in right now, but if you, we're going to constantly be doing them. And if you can send those in anything, yes. true crime, paranormal feedback, uh, yeah, feedback ideas, ideas about aliens. what you'd like to see. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> send it all. Especially for Patreon. If you become a Patreon member, we would mm-hmm. love ideas on what you guys want to see in different, at different levels and right. what we can give to you to make it a better experience you know we are we're still kind of new here and we're figuring it out but um we really want to make patreon like this extra place where we can have a lot more fun yes because we can only do this right now release it on tuesdays so once a week we record on fridays and we do our best yes that's our capacity but we want to be able to give everything else extra that we can do to our patreon members and followers so please Please, if you have any space in your heart and wallet, (laughs) (laughs) anything for sure. Yes, um, it would be much, much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you. And back to the lab reports. If you do have anything you want to send in, please email us at lucidlabpodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, you can mail us at P.O. Box 251 East Lake, Colorado, 80614. And we look forward to hearing from you. For now, we're done. You'll hear from us again soon. So thank you all. And in the meantime, stay lucid. Bye. See ya, see ya.